Hello and welcome to National League Town, Mets fandom, Mets history, Mets life, with Long Island's own Greg Prince and Jeff Heisen. Hey, Greg. Hey, Jeff. On today's show, we take you back to 1993 and we take you to a ball game. But first, we're on vacation this week. We needed a week off from the arduous task of talking about the Mets for an hour, but we didn't want to deprive you of fresh content, so we recorded this during the All-Star break. And now, let's go to a game. Yeah, let's go to a game, Jeff. Why do we go to a game? We go to the game to see the Mets, maybe the other team, maybe two other teams if we're somewhere else. And we join our fellow fans, and we love our fellow fans, our fellow Mets fans. We tolerate the fans of other teams, but, you know, we're all baseball fans. We're all in it together. We're all just trying to have a good time. And we have absolutely no complaints about the way they comport themselves, do we? Yes, we do. When the guy, and it's always a guy, stands up and waves his arms at a big moment, and he waves his arms indicating that the people behind him who he's blocking should stand up. The everybody stand up guy annoys me so much. You call him the everybody stand up guy. I call him the section captain. Every section has a section captain. The section captain indeed does have to stand up, raise those arms with his back to us, maybe give it one glimpse or two over each shoulder behind us to make sure we're following his lead. We're not following your lead, pal. We just want to watch the game. We just want to think this situation through. We love our Mets. We want them to come through in this situation, but sometimes we just want to concentrate on the game. We don't need to stand and wave with you. You were not elected section captain. You were not appointed section captain. You are not David Wright, Keith Hernandez, Gary Carter, or John Franco, who are actually the captain of the Mets. Nobody asked for a captain in Section 518 or any section at City Field or any section at any ballpark. You know what? I could do without the section captain. I don't know if you got that. Sit down, pal, please. And what gets me is that SNY always encourages it by finding that guy. Sometimes the very talented director of the SNY telecast, John DeMarsico, shows how shots come together in the truck on Twitter. And it's a, it's really fun to see the process, but this guy is addicted to fan reaction. He probably inherited that from his mentor, Bill Webb. Again, great directors, great telecasts. We love it. But I can see now that he's saying, you know, give me some fans. Yeah, somebody's hit a home run and you want to see people celebrating. That's nice. That's great. But somewhere along the way, during a very uh, tense at bat or something, guy standing up, giving the arms... Again, on TV, you want to show me that? I don't really care, except you're encouraging it, like you said. I'm at the ballpark. You know what? I I remember both World Series games I went to in 2015. I won't say they were ruined by section captains, but they were not enhanced by section captains. The one game the Mets won at home in that World Series wasn't so much section captaining as guys in front of me who insisted on getting up for every pitch or at least every count that reached i don't know two and two and i get it it's it's the world series and we i saw these guys earlier in the playoffs i understand we want to help the mets win i reached a point during game three i had to get up and take a walk around the stadium because i was like losing my mind and not a good way like stop telling me to stand up and game four a game they lost wasn't too bad until the Mets fell behind and this one woman took it upon herself to not be so much the the section captain but the section scold which was what's the matter with you bleepity bleeps 
what kind of Mets fans are you? You're not helping with you. Gotta get like, oh my God, I want to sink into the seat, go down several sections and, and get out of here. So this can really uh, put a number on your, uh, on your experience. Mostly though, it's, it's, you know, it's not usually that heavy. Usually it's just a, every, an everyday type of game. It doesn't have to be the ninth inning. It doesn't have to be with a playoff spot on the line. Just look at me. I am leading you people to victory and you're not. Sit down. I have something I enjoy. What? I was at a game a couple of weeks ago, and there's somebody sitting in the row behind me shouting, let's go Mets, a lot. And I could have done without the volume. And honestly, I could do without a lot of noise <laughs> at, uh, at City Field during games. But I realized this guy, I took a look, he was sincere. It wasn't you know, constant inning one through inning nine. It was recurring. It was when the Mets were at bats. I don't think let's go Mets is a defensive chant. I know there hasn't been that sort of singularity specified enough for some fans. To me, you shout it in the bottom of innings. But this guy was shouting let's go Mets and he was shouting a lot of encouragement at each player individually. He wasn't looking to be clever. He wasn't looking to be ironic. It's like Oh, I'm going to the game. I want the Mets to do well. Come on, Francisco. Come on, Starling. Come on, Pete. And let's go Mets over and over again. I said, you know what? I got to hand it to this guy. This guy's here for a reason. This guy's here to literally cheer on his Mets and do it in a way that doesn't hurt anybody or doesn't really annoy me. And it's all about me, right? I mean, these are our personal complaints. I got to hand it to the let's go Mets guy. And I got to hand it to anybody who deploys let's go Mets in a wholehearted, sincere Mets are that matter. So uh, here's to you, Mr. Let's Go Mets. I'll give you a variation of that that I don't like and that there's always somebody, I, I've seen this every single game this season, who will, when Nimmo's up, will say, Brandon, yeah, come on, Brandon. And then they remember the slur that people use against our presidents. And they go, let's go, Brandon. And then they think they are the first person to have thought of this. And they chuckle to themselves. This happens every game. So the let's go Brandon guy, you're not clever. You're not original. Stop it. There are things that people probably before the internet used to think of on their own and probably seemed hilarious to them because they never really fed off of anybody else. Not that I'm saying that's hilarious, but I can see the connection, I suppose. It's not particularly funny. It's not funny in any context, unless I will grandfather in anybody who actually shouted that at Brandon Nimmo before this whole thing became a meme or whatever you would call it. But I'd find something else uh, to, to shout. I know uh, I take great pleasure in thinking of Brandon Nimmo as our dark Brandon, uh, which is a way of expressing support for, shall we say, the office of the presidency of the United States. I don't want to get into a whole thing here about other things. I really don't. But I uh, totally understand where you're coming from. And really anything that gets repeated incessantly that people know and it's been said and it's going to be said again, eh, you don't have to say it so much. I would say Brandon Brandon, do well at batting, do well at catching, be the good Met you've been all along here, and uh, we won't get you involved in anything that has nothing to do with baseball. Your turn. What do you got? Okay. This isn't really necessarily a baseball-only thing or a Mets-only thing, but you mentioned getting up. Could you get up if I'm coming through the row? If I need to get up to go to the bathroom, I want to go do anything. I understand. I, I'm trying not to be a pain. I won't 
I won't leave in the middle of an inning. I won't come back during an at-bat, that sort of thing. If I need to get up, get get back to my seat, could just stand about halfway for about two seconds to let me through. And again, this isn't a Met thing only. We were watching, I say we, my, my wife and I were watching something that was taped at Lincoln Center in the same theater where the New York City Ballet performs. Little known fact, I used to go to the New York City Ballet quite a bit. My wife had a subscription for a few years for a few performances every winter. I would join her. I actually, believe it or not, enjoyed it, especially when the Mets weren't playing. The New York City Ballet is notorious between us for people not getting up to let you through. City Field is can be almost as bad. Last game I went to, guy on the end of the row, he gets up. Very nice. I always say thank you. I always say, excuse me, pardon me, I'm sorry, thank you. The woman who was with him, she kind of like turned her legs a little bit to provide just enough space for me to get by. And I want to be empathetic to hit on a theme that we've hit on before. I would hope that getting up was not a problem for her, but I don't think it was. I, you know, she got up and left at some point. Just get up. Let people through. It's not that hard. No, it's it's common courtesy. What I don't like is when people come back to their seats during an at-bat. And some ballparks, uh, notably Philadelphia, they try and stop the person until the batter is out or the next batter is walking up. There's less time to do that this year. But what I don't like is when people stand up while the game is on. Not here to watch you go get a beer. I'm here to watch the Mets. Yeah, I mean, I, I try very hard to, to remember. Like, I, I'll start going down to my seat or going up to my seat, depending where I'm sitting. Say, oh, geez, the at-bat is in progress. And you know, these days, so little time elapses between pitches. It's pre-2023. You could kind of zoom in and out and nobody would miss anything. Yeah, time it a little better. If if the Max Scherzers of the world have to deal with a pitch clock, we should all try to get better at that as well. Agreed. Let me give you something that annoys me at the games. And this is somewhat with Mets fans, but you hear it all over baseball. When the pitcher throws to first, when there's a runner on first, and some fans boo. Why are you booing? Especially now, because there's only two throws to first. It's not like they're throwing over 10 times to keep Vince Coleman close to the bag. You're throwing over twice, and it's actually a tactical advantage if the runner gets back safe, and it's your runner because he can only throw over once more. And if he throws over twice, as Gary Keith and Ron always say, well, now the runner has the advantage. So it's not a bad thing if they throw over. But fans all over baseball are booing throws to first. And again, there's only two. And there could be one in the future because in the Atlantic League where Major League Baseball experiments with rule changes, you're only allowed one throw. So there might be only one in the future, but now there's only two. Don't boo it. Perhaps people could disengage from that habit. <laughs> when a pitcher disengages, they could disengage as well uh, from the habit of when the opposing pitcher does anything, yelling, balk, much as I feel they should disengage from yelling, I got it. At every foul ball that is not coming their way. Very rare is the foul ball that is coming your way. What do you think about foul balls coming your way? And and what, what, what would you do if foul balls coming your way? Well, I wouldn't yell, I got it, because the odds are you're not going to get it. So the ball could be three or four sections over. Stop it. Don't do that. Now, let me ask you a question, though, Greg. People go their whole lives wanting to get a foul ball at a game. I think I, I finally got one, but it's my ball now, and it's my decision. Do you have to give a foul ball to the cute kid who asks for it? I don't want to be rude because it's a cute kid, but getting a foul ball is a 
big deal. So I don't think you're obligated to do so, but some people think that you are. What do you think? Well, I, I will first tell you, I actually saw something like this play out the most recent game I went to. It wasn't a foul ball, but it was the end of the inning. I was sitting in field level. And apparently when you're sitting in field level and you've got the right combination of infielders, somebody will toss a ball into the stands gently. It's not looking to kill anybody. And I've, I've seen this before, but I hadn't sat in this particular section in a while behind the Met dugout. So it was kind of a fresh view of this. And I want to say it was Luis Guillorme who did the tossing. Uh, but regardless, nicely tossed. A lot of, I got it, I got it. And suddenly you realize, oh, this could really be coming to this section. I think what happened was it bounced from the, I guess it would be the Excelsior level or the Sweet level. And back into the field level, back to the row I was sitting in, a couple of seats away from me. It was not never really in play for me. And this one guy, who, by the way, is the same guy who was kind enough to get up when his wife wouldn't when I was walking back and forth. So I'm not criticizing him for anything. Finds the ball, basically reaches down, gets it, holds it up. He is now, of course, you know, a, a local hero for having gotten the ball. And what this guy does before there's any peer pressure whatsoever is he looks around and he is shopping for a kid, basically to give it to. This is his goal. I don't know if this is, I've caught so many foul balls in my life or balls tossed into the stands that I don't need anymore, or he just believes kids and baseball should go together. Maybe I can help to accelerate the growth of another Mets fan, or maybe he just figures, oh, I don't want to hear it. So he waits, and it feels like an eternity. It's one of those things. I mean, it was probably only a few seconds, but he's looking around, and finally, there's like a little kid. I don't know if he was pushed forward by his own parents, or he actually wandered over but once the guy saw him, he was like, here. And he gave him the ball. The kid looked pretty happy. I mean, it wasn't quite that smile lighting up because you see ice cream that's in those terrible commercials encouraging tooth decay that the Mets run a hundred times a game. But the kid seemed happy, uh, you know, rather than, uh, I don't know what the hell this is. People were patting him on the back, like, oh, way to go. That's nice. And he didn't make a big deal of it. He just sat down as if this is what I do when I get a ball, as if that's something that happened. If that worked for that guy... I am. I feel happy for that guy, and I'm still appreciate that he got up to to let me out. But one or two times, I had to get up. Should you feel compelled to do this? This seems like a relatively new thing that they talk about during games. Maybe because they're we now live in an age of highlights. I mean, highlights aren't new. I mean, ESPN was around a long time ago. But those sorts of things, somebody catching a foul ball, maybe somebody reaching over a kid to catch a foul ball, that would be the sort of thing that would get shown and shown again. And of course, in the social media age, nothing is shown only once. I would say you should do what you want with it. And I would say it's nobody else's business. Nobody should shame anybody into giving up a ball. Nobody should tell anybody they were wrong for keeping a ball. And if I'm in that position of catching a foul ball, which I've to say I've actually done at a real Mets game. I once got one at a spring training game in St. Pete, and I once got one at the new Comiskey Park, whatever name it's called now. I know what it's called. I'm just not going to give them sponsorship time. There are a couple of other instances, a uh, batting practice uh, foul ball that bounced off my face, and I guilt I did guilt somebody into not grabbing it once it bounced off my face, for God's sake. There was actually indentation of stitches on it for a week. 
there was one other where uh, the Washington Nationals, your favorite team, visiting City Field, somebody just kind of tossed one. I was sitting in those seats just beyond the bullpen, and he just tossed it. It was just lying on the ground to people who had gotten, I swear to God, like four or five of them. They just didn't care anymore. So like, I just walked over and grabbed it. So I, I thought like I have been deprived all my life, but have I ever been that person sitting in the stands at Shea or City? Oh boy, it's a foul ball. It's coming to me. I got it. No. And I would like that once. Do I need it to bring it home if there is some kid who's like, oh my God. I don't know. I don't know. I'd like, in a way, I'd like to think it, it probably means the totem probably means less to me than the experience right now. But then again, I don't have the baseball in my hand, so I couldn't say for sure. The fact that I'm debating this is probably an indication of the tide of sentiment having turned toward this sort of give it to a kid thing. Because like most of my life, it never even would have occurred to me to think about, yeah, I got a ball. Look what I, I brought home. So everybody should do what they want to do. If you want to give it to a kid, uh, you know what you shouldn't do if you catch a ball? And here, I just came up with one more thing uh, for, for the bad conduct side of things. Don't throw a home run ball back onto the field. I mean, I know Wrigley Field, that's their thing. Bleacher bums, whatever. You know what? Leave it at Wrigley Field. I don't know why we adopted that or some people have adopted that. God knows if you catch a home run ball, I imagine that's even rarer than coming up with a foul ball. So if I somehow came across a, a home run ball, if I was sitting in one of those seats and it was unhappily hit by a visitor, it's a baseball. Jeez, they're not giving them out. I think the message in all of this, Jeff, is conduct yourself well. And uh, we will sit in judgment of your conduct, apparently. Uh, even though, really, we're, we're not that judgy. We, we're just letting it all out today. Do you have a pregame ritual? On the way in City Field, I do like to stop by my brick. Remember, commemorative bricks were offered coming in to the 2009 season brand new City Field. My sister and her husband were kind enough for my upcoming birthday or for Hanukkah that year, which are close together, purchasing me a brick. I could put the inscription, any, anything I wanted, uh, 15 characters per line, so I couldn't go on and on as I've been known to do. So I, I worked on it and came up with, as my inscription, our first date, Mets 8, Giants 3, May 15, comma, 1987. That was my first day with my eventual wife. We met four days earlier. Where would I take her? I took her to a Mets game. Mets won. And there is now a brick outside of the rotunda at City Field commemorating that and slowly getting gummy and dusty and everything else. But I do try to make a point every single game I go to, to at the very least get it within eyesight walk up to that patch of bricks make it out i think it's like the eighth up eighth row and sort of in the middle like where sometimes i'll find it right away sometimes i'm like where the hell is it again like there it is our first date sometimes i will put my foot on it sometimes i will if i'm there with my wife we will both put our feet on it and uh, share a kiss that's on the first base side right little to the first base side of home plate, but it's really right in front. So I'm pretty lucky. I'm going to challenge our listeners for a, a game of where's Greg. You go to City Field, take a picture of yourself with Greg's brick, send it to us, nationalleaguetown at gmail.com, and we'll mention you on the program. What could be better than that? Yeah, it's almost like being stalked. That sounds great. <laughs> stalked and stepped on. Oh. To our listeners, if we've left out anything that annoys you at the game or even pleases you at the game, not the game itself, not the stadium, but about the fans, good and bad, if we left something out, let us know at nationalleaguetown at gmail.com. Let us know what we left out. You can include these two guys who are just hanging on everything I'm doing and making a list of all the horrible behavior 
I bring to the game, and they're going to talk about it on their stupid show. So you feel free to tell us that, too. How annoying are those guys? Oh, they're worst. Moving on. It's the third week of the month inside this year ending in three, which gives us an excuse to present the fourth installment of a series we call It Happens in Threes. Every month around this time, we commemorate a Met year that is arithmetically celebrating a round-numbered anniversary in 2023. Our year in the three-sided spotlight this week is 1993. Happy 30th anniversary to the 1993 Mets and the 1993 Mets season. By the way, that greeting likely marks the first time happy and 1993 Mets have been used in the same sentence. Though Jeff and I were 14 years from meeting, I know that in 1993, each of us shared an obsession that had almost nothing to do with the Mets, namely the fate of our favorite talk show host, David Letterman. This was the year of resolution for the so-called late-night wars, in which Jay Leno kept tenuous hold of The Tonight Show he'd inherited to non-universal acclaim in 1992, while toward the end of June, Dave packed up as much intellectual property as he could from his 12.35 a.m. NBC show and shifted it to an hour earlier at CBS, debuting The Late Show with David Letterman on August 30th, 1993. It represented a sea change in television and entertainment, and you may be wondering what any of this has to do with the 1993 Mets. Well, Dave had been off the air in the heat of summer, when there was a steady stream of New York-based jokes he could have begun making, had he still been doing Late Night at 30 Rock, or had begun The Late Show at the Ed Sullivan Theater. Less than a month into his CBS tenure, Dave began making up for lost time and started getting his licks in. From September 23rd, 1993, Top 10 New York Mets Excuses. Number 10, all those empty seats are distracting. Number 9, part of a grand plan to make Florida Marlins overconfident next year. Number 8, pitchers on other teams throw the ball really fast. Number 7, two words, guaranteed contracts. Number 6, mistake to let Don Knotts bat cleanup. Number 5, Play so much golf during season, thought lowest score wins. Number four, baseball's harder to throw than explosives. Number three, drank Slurpee too fast, got a brain freeze. Number two, didn't scratch themselves enough. And the number one New York Mets excuse, no one named Mookie. If you were a fan of any of the other 27 major league teams, you might have gotten a good laugh out of this top 10 list. If you were a Mets fan still paying attention to the 1993 Mets by September 23rd, when a two-game winning streak had raised their record to 52 and 100, you'd probably already expended all your good humor on the subject of Dave's jibes. In retrospect, Dave's nightly digs at the undisputed worst team in baseball, coming as they did on the eve of the internet age, may have signaled the dawn of what we would come to know in the 21st century as LOL Mets. For 30 years, even in the years they have flirted with greatness, the Mets have endured as a reliable punchline. They may have gotten off to a laughable start as a franchise in 1962, but the balance of the 1980s erased that image once and for all. The 1993 Mets took it out of storage, aired it nightly, after your late local news, and when social media came along, it was ready to be disseminated for generations not yet born three decades ago. For that, I blame the otherwise esteemed David Letterman a little. Mostly, I blame the 1993 Mets. Their wretched residue refuses to fully fade from the greater baseball psyche. Yet those Mets were the Mets, 
and we are Mets fans, and across six months of any baseball season, there have to be some things that don't feel like setups to somebody else's jokes. There were probably Mets fans coming out of 1992 who were no longer Mets fans by 1994, but some of us were never going to be swayed just because we were living through arguably the worst Met year we'd ever lived through, the worst Met year we would ever live through. Hey, just the fact that there hasn't been a Met year anywhere near as bad since 1993 is a good thing. I'm thinking there have to be at least 10 more. That's why, from the home office on the south shore of Long Island, I'm taking it upon myself to present the top 10 almost kind of sort of positive legacies of the 1993 New York Mets. Apologies not just to David Letterman's writers, but anybody who carries the scars of 103 losses and nearly as many embarrassments. Number 10. The season started well. It's Monday, April 5th, a brisk but sunny day. The Mets are no longer 72 and 90, which is how they finished 1992, nor 77 and 84, their record for 1991. The slate is clean. Not only is the season a blank slate, but the opponent is too. We are facing the brand new Colorado Rockies, a product of the first addition by expansion to the National League since 1969. The Rockies will play in the NL West, a counterpart to the Florida Marlins, who have been plopped down into the NL East. The result is a little unwieldy, with two seven-team divisions for the next six months in advance of realignment in 1994, meaning that for the first time since pre-division days, somebody is going to finish as low as seventh. I sure wouldn't want to be a fan of that team. The Mets-Rockies matchup on opening day 1993 echoed how we started 1969, our miracle year, when the first game on the schedule for us was also the first game ever for the Montreal Expos. Of course, the 1969 Expos beat the 1969 Mets with the, of course, an allusion to how the Mets of the 1960s literally never won an opening day. It would become an ironic note in light of what 1969 became in Met lore. Nearly a quarter century later, the Mets were all grown up and had become a nearly perennial opening day winner. Hence, we both looked forward to chaperoning another neophyte franchise internationally play, and we anticipated kicking its ass. Everything about opening day 1993 couldn't have gone more according to plan. The Mets honored Dennis Bird, the Jets' defensive end, who had struggled all winter to walk again after a horrible on-field collision. They presented him with a Mets number 90 jersey and declared him a Met for life. The great classical violinist Itzhak Perlman rosined up his bow and played his fiddle hard for a haunting version of the national anthem. And none other than one of three remaining members of the 1986 Mets, Dwight Gooden, took the ball, starting a Mets opening day for the seventh time. With his first pitch to Eric Young, who we would now identify as Eric Young Sr., Doc christened both the 1993 season and helped bring the Colorado Rockies into this world. The Rockies might as well have joined the 53,127 of us in the stands for all they participated in the game ahead. Maybe it was enough for them to be there and watch Doc do his thing. Gooden threw a four-hit shutout, supported primarily by one newcomer, an RBI ground out from all-star shortstop Tony Fernandez, and two 1992 holdovers, perhaps in search of New York mulligans. First baseman Eddie Murray singled in the game's final run, while right fielder Bobby Bonilla launched the new campaign's first home run and made an impressive catch. In a spiffy two hours and 40 minutes, the Mets had won 3-0. Both Dwight Gooden and the Mets managed by Jeff Torborg were 1-0. The Mets won their second game, too, also at Shea, a couple of days later, with yet another 1992 Met in search of redemption, Brett Saberhagen, showing he was righted, and the Rockies falling to 0-2 lifetime. At this pace, the 1993 Mets would go 162-0. Number nine, the season ended. 
and technically ended well. Here's a standard I bet you didn't know our favorite team holds a share of. The 1993 Mets tied the mark for the worst record by a non-expansion team in an expansion season. The 1962 Cubs went 59-103, the stuff of last place most seasons, but not when the brand new 1962 Mets were doing their thing at 40-120. and 120. In 1993, despite the presence of the Rockies and the Marlins as theoretical easy pickings for all the established franchises in the National League, the Mets compiled a worse record than everybody. After 156 games, they sat at 53-103. and 103. Not even David Letterman had shamed them from resuming their losing ways. All it would take was one more loss in their final six to give them sole possession of worst record by a non-expansion team in an expansion season. Yet, from game 157 through game 162, the 1993 Mets bore down and would not submit to this fetid slice of history. They won their last six. They raised their victory total to a 1962 Cubs-like 59, and they avoided gripping infamy all by themselves. Looked at another way, the team that failed for most of six months failed to fail for a week. If that's not an almost kind of sort of positive legacy, I don't know what is. Number eight, 1993 would be the final year you could go to Shea Stadium and see the 1986 Mets in a plural, if not whole sense. To ever so briefly and happily recap the decade that preceded 1993, the Mets got good in 1984, better in 1985, and as great as they might ever be in 1986, culminating in the franchise's second world championship. From 1987 to 1990, the Mets continued to contend at a very high level and went to the playoffs once, but never repeated their World Series feat. Still, it was an organization that presented itself as built for the long haul. In what felt like a blink, the success the Mets had known felt as if it was being hauled off to the Valley of the Ashes upon which Shea's dating was built. Some of it was age, some of it attrition, some of it nervous management that seemed intent on dismantling the team that gave us the best Met year we would ever live through. By the summer of 1991, the Mets fell out of contention and finished a distant fifth. With the last embers of the ball club's championship goodwill extinguished, management attempted to relight our fire by importing several high-profile players and a somewhat accomplished manager. The result was a 1992 edition, not only worse than 1991's, but literally one for the books. We'll get to the book in a moment. Yet in 1993, maybe you had the pleasure of seeing Dwight Gooden, still the ace of the staff, start on opening day or any of 29 times. Maybe you caught Sid Fernandez on TV throwing a gem on October 2nd in what became his final Met appearance, going seven innings and allowing only two hits and one run while putting down those overconfident Marlins in Miami on October 2nd, the fourth of those six final infamy-averting victories the Mets accumulated. Until July 22nd, you could root for Hojo, Howard Johnson, before an injury prematurely ended his season and it would turn out his Met career. Only Doc would be around in 1994 to directly remind us of 1986, and neither Doc nor that year would make it through the entire schedule. A positive test for cocaine would end Gooden's Met tenure, and a strike would take care of the rest of 94. The way the Mets were playing, there wasn't much to put a person in mind of baseball like it ought to be. But as long as you had a trio of 1986 Mets still on the premises, still active, the glory days didn't seem as distant as they could have. I would submit that July 3rd, fireworks night, emitted the final spark from the era gone by. The house was mostly packed. The Mets won decisively. Cheers went up during and after the game for good measure. Hojo scored a run. The 1993 Mets were 30 games below 500, but if you squinted, you could see something else. Number seven. Certain elements of a brighter future were in sight, if not always where you were looking for them. On April 27th, against Dwight Gooden, no less, the rookie catcher of the Los Angeles Dodgers took the doctor deep for his first Shea Stadium home run. 
It wouldn't be the last of those shots for the 24-year-old Mike Piazza. You wouldn't have guessed in 1993 that Piazza, on his way to winning NL Rookie of the Year honors, would wind up hitting most of his flushing homers as a Met. But that's what the future is for. On July 11th, Gooden would be facing the Dodgers again at Cheyenne, as in April he'd pitch well enough to win, but lose. It was that kind of year. This time, the youngster Mets fans might not have seen coming was a reliever Tommy Lasorda brought in to maintain a 1-1 tie. This kid was known better as some other Dodgers brother. But by the time the night was over, Mets fans had gotten a taste of someone who was about to become famous in his own right, 21-year-old winning pitcher Pedro Martinez. The younger sibling of Ramon had just notched his first Shea Stadium win. A dozen years later, Pedro winning at Shea would have a different connotation. In guises more instantly pleasing to us, August 14th introduced us to a promising right-hander from Fresno, California, which was a characterization that had worked for us before, if only his biography reminded us of Tom Seaver. The results, 23-year-old Bobby Jones produced in his major league debut, a win over first place, Philadelphia, hinted that there might be the beginnings of a pennant-winning rotation coming together. Seven years later, Jones and Piazza formed a battery three times in the postseason, including during the 2000 World Series. Others we were just coming to know in 1993 would make themselves at home on the major league scene for a long time to come, included Jeff Kent, who came over as a rookie in 1992 and established himself as the everyday second baseman, building 21 homers in his first full Met year. Jeremy Burnitz, the Mets' number one draft pick from 1990, who was called up in June, knocked 13 balls out of National League yards, and like Kent, had many good years ahead of him, albeit not in New York. And Tim Bogar, a rookie infielder whose playing career lasted until 2001 and whose coaching career continues to, to this day with the Washington Nationals. Although Bogey never became what you'd call a star, he did leave us this legacy. The Mets traded Tim Bogar for infielder Luis Lopez in 1997. The Mets traded Luis Lopez for the second coming of lefty Bill Pulsifer in 2000. The Mets traded Pulse 2.0 later that season for the second go-round of all-time pinch hitter Lenny Harris. In 2002, the Mets packaged Lenny Harris in a three-way deal that brought, yes, Jeremy Burnitz back to Queens. In 2003, the Mets sent Burnitz to the Dodgers for promising outfield prospect Victor Diaz. In 2006, the Mets traded Diaz to Texas for catcher Mike Nickius. In 2012, the Mets sent Nickius to Toronto as part of the package that netted minor leaguers Noah Syndergaard and Travis Darno, who, like Jones and Piazza, would form a Met World Series battery of their own in 2015. So you go to the ballpark in a down year, assuming you are distracted by all those empty seats, you never know how far into the future you might be able to see. Number six, in the words of Bob Murphy, there was an excellent addition to your baseball library available for all Mets fans. Though, since this wasn't produced by the team, Murph wasn't on the air hawking it like he might have a full-color revised edition of the official New York Mets yearbook. We mentioned earlier that the 1992 Mets season was one for the books. The literal book that covered it all in absorbing detail came out during the first week of the 1993 season. If I may use a publishing term here, it was a doozy. Written by beat reporters Bob Klappish and John Harper, entitled The Worst Team Money Could Buy, the book shone a harsh light on the 1992 Mets and, to a lesser extent, the era that preceded it. The era that preceded it encompassed plenty of Met winning, but the characters, whether in the clubhouse or the front office, didn't come off as terribly charming. But at least there was plenty of Met winning. The 1992 Mets, bolstered by a high payroll, were expected to turn miserable 1991 into an aberration. Instead, they cemented once and for all that the good times were over. The 1993 Mets accomplishment would be to codify it all as perhaps the most unpleasant era in Mets history. The players who were looked to to get it together after falling apart in 92 were not up to the task. And as far as likability was concerned, seventh wouldn't be a low enough place for the above the marquee 1993 Mets to land. Whether you read it in the book or saw it for yourself, the worst team leads, Murray, 
Bonilla, and the woefully miscast Vince Coleman, or a turnoff. Bobby Bowe in particular played the role of public relations villain both in the pages of Worst Team and in his reaction to its release. When Clappish showed up to cover the Mets' second series of the season, Bonilla confronted him with a threat to show you the Bronx, with Bobby invoking his home borough and whatever menace it was supposed to imply. It was all great publicity for the book, but the 1993 Mets, in a way, had the last laugh because they made the title and concept as it regarded the 1992 Mets outdated. It didn't matter what expense was committed to crafting the 1993 Mets. This team from 30 years ago had eclipsed its direct predecessors as the worst team money could buy. Really, the worst pretty much covers everything about that Mets season. Oh, and during the weekend Benia was getting in Clappish's face, the Mets were swept at home by the Astros, after which it was off to Denver to play baseball at Mile High Stadium. In front of enormous crowds, the Mets took a pair from Colorado before losing the finale. Their road trip took them to Cincinnati, where the Mets won Friday and Saturday. At this point, the 1993 Mets were 6-4. and four. That was the high watermark of the season in terms of being over 500. It was also the last time the Mets would win two games in a row for eternity. The 6-4 and four Mets of April 17th were on their way to becoming the 21-52 and 52 Mets of June 27th. In the process of going 15-48, and 48, the Mets took down their manager. Jeff Torborg was replaced by Dallas Green in late May and set the stage for the dismissal of their general manager, Al Harrison, who gave way to another former Frank Cashin deputy, Joe McElvain. The boots given Torborg and Harrison were cathartic. That didn't change much. Really, if 1993 proved anything, it's that you should be able to fire the players. Number five, live and be well can actually happen, whether you mean it or not. Let's get to the crux of what made the 1993 Mets such a bad team in the 1993 Mets season about as bad as a year can get. They had a bunch of good players playing badly and coming off even worse. Former MVP candidate Bobby Benilla, as noted, threatened a reporter, which set the tone for a year when you didn't much notice he was putting up very good numbers, albeit in a relentless losing cause. 34 homers, 87 RBIs before injuries curtailed this season. Two-time Cy Young winner Brett Saberhagen shot legit reporters from a children's toy gun. The Mets were not huge fans of the press, who had the temerity to tell people how their games went. Brett was oft injured in 1993, much as he had been in 1992, but boy, could he handle a super soaker. Eddie Murray, who'd passed 400 homers in 92, mostly snarled as he kept adding to his tower of Cooperstown-worthy numbers. Drove in 100 runs in 93, but gave you the idea you shouldn't come up to congratulate him. Tony Fernandez, a winning, admired player in previous stops, didn't hit and seemed disinterested in fielding his position. Torborg tolerated his slow start. Green saw enough and sanctioned the trade and sent him to Toronto for a second time. And Vince Coleman, who boy, as they say. The Mets signed the former Cardinals speedster to be their leadoff hitter a couple of months after Saturday Night Live tried to warn them by airing a commercial parody called Bad Idea Jeans. The bit never explicitly said, let's get an artificial turf player to Shea and have him try to replace Daryl Strawberry's impact on the lineup now that Straw's gone to L.A., but it might as well have. Coleman was a horrible fit for the Mets. He couldn't or didn't deliver whatever he could do at Bush Stadium, and he made Eddie Murray seem like Little Miss Sunshine by comparison. Coleman's three-year tenure as Met disaster reached its nadir on July 24th in the Dodger Stadium parking lot when, for kicks, he threw a firecracker out a car window and injured a little girl. Coleman was signed to a four-year deal, but the Mets could not get rid of him fast enough. Co-owner Fred Wilpon, who was content to remain in the shadows as long as the Mets were winning or at least not hurting anybody, stepped forward to announce himself that Coleman would soon be gone. It didn't take long for all the bad idea Mets to be deleted from the roster. Coleman, suspended during the season, was traded in the offseason for another helping of Kevin McReynolds. Murray played out his contract and moved on. Saberhagen and Benilla would stick around until the 1995 trade deadline when the house cleaning mission was completed. 
Thing is, each of these previously good players resumed being good players post-Mets. Fernandez was reborn when he went back to his first team, the Blue Jays, and helped them win the 1993 World Series. Murray was part of Cleveland's baseball renaissance, which featured their wise veteran slugger leading them to their first fall classic in nearly 40 years. Saber Hagen pitched for the National League's first wildcard team, the 1995 Rockies, in the playoffs. That same October, Coleman was part of the Seattle Mariners' thrilling refuse-to-lose runs to the ALCS. And good old Bobby Bowe could be seen with his smile restored in Baltimore, not pushing a reporter around, but pushing his pal Cal Ripken Jr. out of the dugout to accept Camden Yards' adulation on the night in 1995 that Cal passed Lou Gehrig as baseball's Iron Man. A year later, Benilla, like all of the above, would be back in the playoffs. Bobby Bowe would be on another playoff team in 1999, but that's another story and another contract for another time. We just wish these guys from 1993 gone. Maybe we weren't spiteful enough to wish beyond their exits. Ah, you know what? Live and be well. Number four, Mike Draper was a Rule 5 pick who made his only major league start as an emergency fill-in when Saberhagen couldn't go, a game the Mets won when that was unusual. Doug Saunders was a great glove at second base who absolutely could not drive in a run. He set a Mets record for most at-bats, 67, with no RBIs. Tito Navarro was a shortstop who came up on September 6th and went 0-5. In his next game, he was called on to pinch hit in the ninth and struck out, but he shouldn't have taken that personally. It was the game when Darryl Kyle no-hit the Mets in Houston. Tito would come to the plate 18 times in all and manage just one hit, but that one hit drove in the winning run in Atlanta, in a game the Braves really needed if they were going to repeat as NL West champs. Kenny Greer, a minor league reliever, the Mets accepted his payment from the Yankees for veteran Frank Tamana, entered his only game as a Met, his first game in the big leagues, in the top of the 17th inning at Shea. The score was nothing-nothing. Greer, like every other pitcher on both sides of this September 29th Mets Cardinals tilt, held the other team scoreless. In the bottom of the 17th, Jeff Kent, someday a serious Hall of Fame candidate, knocked in Eddie Murray, 10 years hence a Hall of Fame inductee, with the only run of the long night. Kenny Greer was 1-0 and and was tied for best lifetime winning percentage by any pitcher in any season. Players come and go in any year. The 1993 Mets may not have been built to be transient, but when you lose 103 games, you're going to have some short timers and seat fillers. None among Draper, Saunders, Navarro, nor Greer played for the Mets after 1993, and not one of them saw major league action beyond 1995. Still, you got to hand it to ballplayers who work to make it to the highest level, sip from their cup of coffee, and make the best of a bad situation. Number three, Frank Tanana tripled once in 1993. Dwight Gooden tripled twice, including as a pinch hitter on the season's final day. I don't care what kind of year your team is having. You get three triples out of two pitchers, you're seeing something to savor. Number two, Anthony Young won a game. He lost 27 decisions in a row before winning that game. He was hardly responsible for all 27 losses that piled up on his ledger across 1992 and 1993. He posted a bunch of saves while filling in his closure for an injured John Franco. So it's not as if he was wholly allergic to success. More importantly, he wasn't allergic to good grace. As AY starting and relieving blew past previous records for consecutive losing decisions, he didn't snap, he didn't blow up, He didn't take it out on reporters or the teammates who didn't make the plays behind him when he was on the mound. We rooted for Anthony Young to finally get lucky one of these days. That became our 1993 World Series. We won our spiritual championship on July 28th. 
The Mets were at Shea with those cocky Marlins, the opposition. A.Y. came on in the top of the ninth, score nodded at three. An error in a fielder's choice led to an unearned run, and Anthony was positioned for consecutive loss, number 28. Yet in the bottom of the ninth, here came Jeff McKnight to single, Dave Gallagher to sacrifice, Ryan Thompson to drive in the tying run, and Eddie Murray to double in the winning run. Even Eddie had to smile for what he had accomplished. He had ensured a W for A.Y. Anthony Young had won a game at last. His losing streak had been national news. Its end was just as big a story. When the Mets' schedule permitted it, A.Y. flew out to Burbank and was a guest on Jay Leno's Tonight Show. Letterman was between NBC and CBS during the summer. Otherwise, Dave might have met Anthony and thought twice before painting the Mets as a bunch of buffoons. A.Y. ended his three-year Met career as the classiest of five and 35 pitchers. And the number one, almost, kind of, sort of, positive legacy of the 1993 New York Mets. You're listening to him. I'm the fan I am today because of the 1993 Mets. I'm the fan I am because of many Mets teams, to a degree, every Mets team I've experienced since getting caught up in this thing of ours in 1969. But 1993, from a remove of 30 years, is special. I say that not with the irony of a letterman nor the schmaltziness of a Leno. I say that as someone who went to 16 games at Shea that season, the first time I ever cracked double digits. It should have been 17, but I went to a funeral the morning of what was supposed to be my last game, and traffic patterns detoured by a presidential motorcade of all things prevented me from reaching the ballpark. A funeral and the 1993 Mets indicates the jokes right themselves, but it did happen. The whole damn year happened. I was embedded with this team as it sought and gripped seventh place. The last year a team could win seventh place. As the spring of 1993 blended into summer, lyrics from a song from a few years earlier circulated in my head. There are just so many summers, babe, and just so many springs. The song was The Last Worthless Evening by Don Henley. I suppose any invocation of worthless was inevitable in 1993, but what hit me was what had become of the two seasons he mentioned. Spring was gone, and from a baseball standpoint, summer was doomed. Even in 1991 and 1992, the ultimately lousy Mets did us the courtesy of stringing us along for a while, both years carrying not altogether unreasonable division title hopes into August. It would have taken a miracle, and it should have been obvious none was forthcoming, but you had hope. For nine consecutive seasons dating back to 1984, you entered every Mets summer with some sense that anything was possible. We might have been kidding ourselves, but we were in on the joke. You had to go back to 1983 to find a year when the Mets were effectively out of it before the 4th of July. 1983, as we discussed in the previous episode in the series, was a hindsight special. It would look better and better in the rearview mirror, knowing that the seeds that were planted that summer would bear fruit in the summers to come. We could even sort of sense something better was coming even as last place proved intractable. Was there anything worthwhile germinating amid the soil of the summer of 1993 besides Bobby Jones and the Tim Bogar trade chain? That would take hindsight to see, too, and a very selective stare into one's own personal rearview mirror. I honestly don't believe I'm here as the fan I turned into without the half-decade stretch that began in 1993 and ran through 1997. I'd been a Mets fan for about 25 years before that, yet I swear I was just getting started. The internet clicked online in 1994, and that made a difference. Some youngsters would show their stuff in 1995, and that made a difference. The Yankees took over New York in 1996 with me surrounded by their fans everywhere I turned. Yet absolutely unmoved except to hate the Yankees more, and that made a difference. In 1997, with Bobby Valentine having replaced Dallas Green, the Mets began to make strides, winning more than they lost and competing for the playoffs. That made all the difference. When Piazza showed up from Los Angeles via Florida in 1998, I was a different, deeper fan than I was when Mike hit that first Shea home run off Doc. 
It all started in 1993, entwined with a worse team than the worst team money could buy, and exposed daily and voluntarily to all their foibles. I had my moments of fed upery, as any fan will, but it was too late to move me. We and I were in it for the long haul. And if 1993 can't shake you of the Mets, you're not going anywhere. Seventh place is sometimes where you get stuck. That'll happen in threes. Come back in a month and we'll talk about a Mets club that finished two whole places higher. Just don't ask how many teams were in that division in 2003. What strikes me about that season is the number of recognizable names, names that still evoke something with us. So a lot of recognizable names, but certainly not a recognizable, famous season. I think you did it better justice than it deserved, Greg. Part of my feeling in the, in the rearview mirror for 1993 is personal because I did go to a lot of games that year. Never been to more than seven in a single season. That was the year before going to Shea was just one of those things that when I was a kid, I was like an event. And even as I got older, for whatever reason, it just wasn't that accessible to me or I hadn't made it that accessible. I turned 30 on the last day of 1992 and I was given 15 pairs of tickets for Mets games, not exactly season tickets, but the moral equivalent thereof by my family, which was a beautiful thing to do, even coming out of 1992, because they didn't know the difference. They just knew, hey, it's the Mets. I think it sparked a little bit of a rebirth in me that indicated about five years to really come totally to fruition to the where, again, once they got Piazza, I was, you know, every day was the World Series to me and would be for a few years. The other thing, you know, again, I was younger then. I'm allowed to be sentimental. We're all allowed to be sentimental. I encountered something a few years ago where I was just reading a passage of something I'd written to my wife and needed to get her opinion. And I, it was from 1993, the thing I was writing about. And I mentioned a bunch of names, Bania and Kent and AY, maybe some others. And I kind of thought she would just sort of say, that's nice. They're very nice, dear. But she said, no, you, you really took me back there. I, I remember all those players. It really moved me. Because suddenly I was 30 years old again. You know, that was the, the first year that we had two cats. We had just moved into a new place, except for the Mets sucking. It was a good time. You know, I'd like to think it's still a good time. But um, I realized how much these teams stay with you. And that 93 team has stayed with me. Now, again, I'm not going to sell it to anybody as an aspirational year by any means. It really was horrible. I understand when people say, don't remind me, I don't want to know. And I hope you've, you've hung in there all this long. It is part of our history. And we came out of it. Todd Hunley, he was becoming more and more the everyday catcher that year. And he probably would have been part of those playoff teams had the Mets not gone for Piazza if we assume the Mets were going to be good enough anyway. And they'd gotten good with Hunley. And they'd gotten good with Jones, who becomes an all-star in 97. But really, you do have to kind of use a tweezers to, to pick out the things that make you happy in retrospect. I, I think the year boils down for me, living through it. Not, not looking back gauzily, but actually look, looking through it. Gone to a game on Mother's Day that they lost. And then we were meeting my father and his then new girlfriend, who he would be with for the rest of his life, and her family. We were all getting together in Great Neck for dinner. And, you know, I come in and I'm like, oh, we just went to the Met game. The Mets lost. Oh, well, my father's girlfriend's daughter says, and I don't think she meant anything by it, was saying how at her temple, they were having some sort of charity auction and various things were put up. And one of them was a pair of tickets to a Mets-Dodgers game. And then she says, and it was total silence. Nobody bid on it. 
And everybody kind of laughed. I was just insulted the way I would be insulted about things like that. Not at her, just at all these people who didn't want to go to a Mets-Dodgers game. I would be going to a Mets-Dodgers game in July. I was at that Pedro Martinez game that I mentioned and uh, was at a bunch of games that year. And, you know, I've always kind of used it as a bit of a punchline. Yeah, the year that I start going to Mets games a lot is 1993. The, The empty seats could be distracting, as David Letterman said. Although that was the first year, if you you go and look at box scores, you'll think, what are you talking about? There's 17,000 people every night. That was the first year the National League screwed around with its reporting to be more like the American League and didn't tell you what the actual gate was. By the end of the year, you were lucky if there were 2,500 people in the ballpark. It never occurred to me not to go. It never occurred to me to be fed up with the Mets beyond just one of those nights where I've had enough of this. I think there was one game against the Phillies in the middle of summer. Remember, this is the Dykstra Phillies and everything's going great for them. And the Mets were the Mets. And the Mets had like blown a 5 nothing lead and I think ended up losing 6-5. to five. And I remember thinking, good, you deserve it. You deserve to lose to this team that's having so much fun and you guys are horrible to root for. And I'll live with that one night of saying, oh my God, I actually was like not unhappy the Phillies had beaten the Mets, but I was, I think I was trying tough love on them and it didn't really work. It was a hell of a year to live through. It was a hell of a year to pick to, to immerse yourself in the team as if you would, as you had never immersed yourself in it before. And after a while, all the big names didn't matter. You know, as we are every year when, when things aren't going well, you're happy. Like, let's see the kids and the kids weren't much. I mean, they made little impressions. One name I think I, sh- I should throw in, Butch Husky. Butch Husky made his debut in that no-hitter by Daryl Kyle. And again, Butch Husky was not part of the playoff teams that emerged, but he was at the beginning of that. So you look for guys like those. You look for moments like those. And the AY thing, I'll never forget. I've gone to a concert in Central Park that night, had tickets for Summer Stage, Al Jarreau and David Sanborn. This lives on in, a, in family lore because it's a super hot night. David Sanborn opens and, you know, he plays some saxophone and he says, you know, he points out somebody else in his band. Hey, it's the drummer. It's who are the guitarists. It's whoever. And like David Sanborn disappears for half an hour. And I'm thinking David Sanborn just went back to the hotel for air conditioning. Anyway, David Sanborn, Al Jarreau, I've got my walk band with me because I need to follow the last place Mets. When we get to Penn Station and we're in the waiting room, I find the one little spot where you can get any kind of WFAN reception at all because Anthony Young is in the game and they are trying to win the game for him. That's that night. They do it and I hear it through the static and I'm ecstatic and it's off to the train and it's still in last place. I I won't lie and say it's as good as any World Series one because of course it wasn't. But for 1993, it, it was the pinnacle. I was there the day he set the record in late June when they reached 21 and 52. You know what the Mets did that year? Here, I'll, I'll end with this. The, the cynical Mets who had sold out their programs on opening day because everybody wanted to have a, a first ever Rockies program. It was going to be worth so much. And then they like printed up more and made it not worth anything. They were making a big deal out of the Anthony Young is going to lose today programs. Get yours now. <laughs> This worker could be a record setting program. It's like, what are you doing to this guy? Why, why are you making this a curio? Always appreciate that what AY did and uh, how he carried himself. And, you know, I, I wish he were still around to come to old timers days and, and hear the applause. Uh, I will, I will pronounce it in an embarrassing fashion, probably. Uh, Anis Horribilis, is that what they called it in England in 1992? The Queen said uh, that's what that terrible year for the monarchy and for England. That's what 1993 was for us, but we survived it. I'll give you one good day from 1993, and that's May 13th. The second best thing that happened on that day was that Pete Shorrock pitched eight shutout innings. John Franco got the save as the Mets defeated the Cardinals in St. Louis for nothing. Notable on the Cardinals, 
Greg Jeffries, and Todd Zeal. Dave Gallagher, by the way, hit a home run for the Mets. That's only the second best thing that happened on that day because my son, Dylan, was born. At least something good happened in 1993. I actually remember that game specifically. Come on. I do because (laughs) it was the one game and it wouldn't happen again for another 10 years when we get to our, our next stop in this series that I didn't realize it was a day game in St. Louis. And I didn't realize the Mets were playing. And it was the first time that it happened probably since I graduated college. And I, I didn't have the Met schedule tattooed in my brain. I had gone into the city on some work thing. I, I came back home to get my car. I walked in and I just turned on the TV for me. Hey, the Mets are playing. I didn't know the Mets were having a day game today. Which for me is like taking off like five years. Let's hear it for the Mets winning on days that Mets fans are born. Well, we look forward to 2003, or at least hearing Greg's recap and remembrances of 2003 next month. Before we go, we want to thank Max O'Donnell, who reviewed the podcast and wrote, Hands down, my very favorite Mets podcast. The best compliment I can give is if I were sitting next to these guys in a diner and they were talking Mets like this, I'd keep getting coffee refills and stay just to listen. We thank you, Max. And if that ever happens, the coffee is on National League Town. Max, come over to our booth. I don't drink coffee, but uh, we'll hang around with you while you do. And we'll just keep talking Mets. It doesn't take much to get us going. Thank you very much. And we'll be back next week with another episode of National League Town. We thank you for listening. So until then, I'm Jeff Heisen. I'm Greg Prince. And as always, let's go Mets. Copyright 2023 music provided by the Royal Arctic Institute. Check them out on Spotify. Come on.